risk us, risk us if you can. That sounds so familiar. Yeah, it's not an uncommon thing. Do you have any reason for being concerned beyond that? I, I mean, no, I, that's a dangerous point, but that's not uncommon among people, too. Do you have a reason for being especially worried in her case? About that part? Yeah. But, um, no, I don't think so. You're working with her, meeting with her? the least of the worries. Sorry? <laughs> the least of the problems. Yeah, I mean. yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you this day, the gift of yourself in the Mass, for your presence with us. What a great honor to um, offer yourself in humans um, with all of our sins, that we carry you in your splendor and your kingdom within us, in our fallen nature. Um, struggling to put our sins away and still falling. Um, um, how can we thank you enough um, how good you are? Um, watch over us all here, particularly in this Advent season. Strengthen us in our efforts to wait, to learn how to wait genuinely, to renounce ourselves, to give things up, to fast, um, to curb our appetites, um, to learn to hope better by putting things away, that's a spiritual kind of warfare, um, to take ourselves on like that. Help us all to do that. I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing in our reading. Um, let it strengthen our faith. Um, give us the courage to go out into the world um, to offer ourselves, particularly as we learn more about ourselves from these works. I ask a special blessing on Madison and Tracy. Be with Madison, surround her. Um, with your grace, watch over her, please. Let no harm come to her. Um, the struggles that you allow for us, you allow so often um, for us to become stronger in the good um, that we're not always as aware of as we should be. Watch over her. Let these struggles make her a better person. Um, be with Tracy. Um, Help her to keep her own courage and her own hope up, um, to step back um, even while she offers Madison her help. I ask a special blessing on Marcy. Heal her, please. Help her recover her health. Let her know your presence. Um, take away this illness. Um, be with Christopher and Kayla and their children, particularly Sienna. Strengthen them in humility. Help them both to grow in humility so they can return to the love, grow in it, um, that they committed themselves to. Uh, help us to carry you with us through the rest of this night and all that we do. We are grateful for all your help. Thank you, Lord. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <coughs> Okay, quick, let's just do, I'm going to do this quickly, no commentary tonight. I want to do the fourth section of, uh, or I mean, uh, East Coker. The one thing to keep, well, I'm not going to make a comment. The one thing to keep in mind here is the fall is everywhere. You know, we can't get rid of it. These images of the hospital and the surgeon and the ruined millionaire, I mean, 
Everybody in our world is sick. And the one thing that most people who are healthy don't want to admit is that they're sick. They want to admit that they're healthy and self-sufficient. They don't need anybody. Um, but Elliot is constantly, remember, struggling to find this still point in a fallen world. So just keep that in your mind here as we read this fourth section. Um, this is, a, remember, we've entered the darkness in the third section. Remember, into the dark, it's where all, all of us go. And he uses all of those titles of those very important people because the last thing that's going to be on their mind is they're going into the dark. They're too successful. They've got too much wealth, too much power to even give any thought to those sorts of things. And he continues that in some way, but from another perspective in section four. Okay? Section four, East Coker. And notice for the first time in this poem that he uses um, a very regular metrical form. We can hear the beat. It's more emphatic. It's more obvious. And a more obvious rhyme scheme. It's more traditional. Eliot rarely does that. He will do it a couple of times in four quartets. But he does it here in a really noticeable way. Section four. <clears throat> the wounded surgeon applies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art, resolving the enigma of the fever chart. Our only health is the disease if we obey the dying nurse whose constant care is not to please, but to remind of our and Adam's curse. And that to be restored, our sickness must grow worse. The whole earth is our hospital endowed by the ruined millionaire, wherein if we do well, we shall die of the absolute paternal care that will not leave us, but prevents us everywhere. The chill ascends from feet to knees, the fever sings in metal wires. If to be warmed, then I must freeze and quake in frigid purgatorial fires, of which the flame is roses and the smoke is briars. The dripping blood our only drink, the bloody flesh our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. I love this section. It, it, the, open, the images in the first two um, um, sections give us images of people trying to help and it's clear from Eliot's presentation of them that what they do is only reinforce the enabling that goes on our world. The world is an enabling place in lots of ways in the way that it offers help to us. It's keeping us from the cross, from Eucharist, from the cross, from death. The whole, you know, the, the wounded surgeon, the only health is the disease if we and that to be restored, our sickness must grow worse. If we don't learn to come to the real depth of our sin, we will never get better. And so much of what the world does prevents us from doing that. The whole earth is our hospital and down by the ruined millionaire. Wherein if we do well, we shall die of absolute paternal care. It will not leave us, but prevents us everywhere. And then the last images in the last two sections are purgatorial. I mean, what they do is bring together, ox, or they're oxymorons, they bring together opposites. If to be warmed, then I must freeze and quake in frigid, purgator in frigid purgatorial fires, 
of which the flame is rose. Remember the ascent up the Paradiso? The ultimate end of the Paradiso is the rose. It's the Imperium, which was images of rose. Um, and smoke is briars, the, the crown of thorns. I mean, how many of us make a place for a crown of thorns in our lives? You know, we want to live and things that threaten our life, that, are, that can take the form of briars, of thorns, of crosses, annoy us. The dripping blood, our only drink. Remember I told you, Eliot's addressing a non-Christian audience. So, so much of this is this, he's not going to be explicit, except here you, hard to miss it, yeah? The dripping blood, our only drink, the bloody flesh, our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. Because on Good Friday, Christ's God died. Body and blood, divinity went to a cross. And we're asked to follow him. So, okay. I hope you guys will go back to Eliot when we're done, you know, spend an evening just reading a quartet because I think when you read them and you go through them, you're going to find dimensions of meaning coming to you that will open up. And you'll find also that when you read them, they're very much like meditative prayers. They're very meditative in, their, in the tone, in the rhythm. Um, and unlike the Psalms, they're in our idiom. There are, the images are ours. It's a modern, it's a modern idiom. So, okay, very quickly. Um, I hope everybody. I hope everybody's taking advantage of Bob and Marcy's graciousness again. Um, there's so much food there, and they bless their souls. They brought wine. If I don't see anybody drink from that one bottle, I'm going to bring it up here and keep it to myself. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. I'll bring it to you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, okay, just very quickly. Um, last week we talked about the perspective of the Old Testament, the readings for the last couple of weeks before Advent, you remember, were visions from Daniel. And they, they, they came out of that period of um, occupation when Jerusalem was occupied by Babylon. So the holy temple, the holy city had been taken over, the people were in exile. And Daniel is giving um, Nebuchadnezzar and his son uh, Belshazzar these prophecies, these readings of these dreams and omens, and um, all of them have to do with the decline of great empires. And one of the questions I asked everybody last week was, is America in that condition now? Have we lost our way? Are we occupied? I mean, is, um, are, are we true to our founding Christian principles? Remember the, the founding, in our, in our case, for our founding consisted of, a, I'm going out on a limb here, but I think, I think you'll, I don't think there'll be any argument here, but the founding in one sense represented a reconciliation between classical principles of a polity and Christian. There's no way we could have come to a polity whose purpose was universal, to have all men come together, 
that wasn't Christian, because there's nothing else in the world that would have brought us there. So there's this Christian spirit behind the founding, even if it's not explicitly Christian, the declaration of, certainly that's Lincoln's reading of it too, you know, a new man, that the end of America was to produce a new kind of man, to get rid of the tribal loyalties and the class loyalties so that we could all, it's like a modern Rome, so that we could all come together. It's like an extension of the Aeneid. I asked the question, are, are we Egypt or, or Jerusalem? Egypt, remember, is one of the dominant figures that runs through literature from Dante forward. It's in Faulkner, it's in, in Go Down Moses, it was there in Faulkner. It was in Dante, remember when the ship of souls came to do purgatory, they were coming from Egypt, from the world, that the world is a place of slavery. We're, we're journeyers, we're meant to pass through, our home is elsewhere. Have we lost that sense as a Christian people? The great theme of the trilogy, even though it's not explicit in the, in the first book, certainly not in the Hamlet, is God putting his house in order. It's not gonna make much sense to you right now. It, it will in the mansion, because something extraordinary is gonna happen in the mansion. I, I hope it blows you away. It almost knocked my socks off the first time I read it. I, I couldn't sit down. Honestly, I had to stand up when I saw what he was doing. I think I told you that I had to run upstairs and talk with one of my colleagues because I could not believe what Faulkner was doing. And it's about God putting his house in order. So even though it seems humanistic, not explicitly religious, it speaks directly to our disorders the way Go Down Moses does. Except this is, this is Faulkner when he's mature. This is at the end of his life. Um, um, we talked about the social contract theory, its importance in the modern world, the contractual frame of mind that's um, cultivated in people, um, enculturated. Um, and I, I want to pass this on to you just, I, I want to actually, I, I've got Don in the Friday morning class on my mind because after class was over on Friday, he came up to me and he said, because I'm assuming my presentation of the social contract hasn't been very neutral or positive. Um, he said, Bob, do you, how do you put it? Do you think the social contract is bad? And that was so black-white, and it was more black-white than I had wanted to make it, but it made me aware that I was probably being pretty negative about it. But let me say emphatically here, up front, unequivocally, because I've got to tell Don on Friday morning, when we, my answer to that question is yes, for this reason, and I don't think I was clear enough, and I want to be clear here, Remember that the social contract theorists, particularly Hobbes and Rousseau, believed that it was only by giving the government absolute powers, nearly absolute, in Hobbes' case, absolute powers. In Rousseau's case, almost absolute powers. In some ways, for Locke, who's more moderate, he's an empiricist, it, it, it wasn't so much that, but in, there were some areas in which Locke believed it was essential that we give our, the power to the government. One of the, one of the beliefs in Locke's part that, that separated him from Locke's and Rousseau is he believed that no government could, um, could rule us unless it had our consent. So some people see Locke as being very important in the formulating of the Declaration of the Constitution because you know the government has no powers apart, is not supposed to have any powers apart from our consent. That's a fundamental American principle. But if you look at Hobbes and Rousseau and the three of them together, this is what becomes clear, that, that all of them see government as playing an enormous role in our lives. 
a role that's almost totalitarian, that the government has absolute power. If you look at the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, you can see the Founding Fathers did everything they could to limit the powers of government because they knew if they didn't, the government would fall. Federalist Papers, Federalist 10, is a classic comment on that fact. The separation of powers, the division between the Senate and the legislature, right? That every state gets equal power because they know it has to offset the legislature because the le legislature powers are representative of the masses of people. Even the, even, even the Electoral College, because they knew that a, a majority will could overrule and take control of a country. The, great, the greatest threat to the founders was majority rule because they knew from, from every experience in history the democracies tumbled when the majority got rule. So everywhere written into our constitution, our nature as a people, the government was trying to do everything could, or the, the founders were trying to do everything they could to limit the powers of government. So my answer to about the, the uh, um, social, contract. social contract theorists is, yeah, I think inherently it is bad to the extent that it, it tends to increase the powers of the government. Lincoln, of the people, by the people, for the people, the consent of the people, Everything about our government is meant to turn towards us. When the government increases its powers, we get weaker as the people. We take less responsibility for ourselves. We depend on the government to do more for us. Father keeps harping on this over and over and over again. He keeps saying, the answer isn't to give, ask the government to do something, because it keeps taking responsibility off of us. We're supposed to go out, feed the hungry, clothe the poor, visit the prisoners. He, he, go, he does this again and again. Christ doesn't say, um, give the government more money so they can feed the poor, house, you know, visit. He says, it's us. We're, Christ said, we're going to be judged on this. He says it again and again. We're going to be judged on this. Haven't ever doing that. We, we are, the sign, one of the signs that we are Egypt, Jerusalem occupied, is that we have given more and more powers over to the government. Look at the power of the media in the last 20 years last 30, 40, 50 years. The media has become an arm of the government. It's become an established, reminds me of Henry's England. I'm not kidding about this. This is Henry's England. The power is totalitarian. The government has been putting forth an agenda that reinforces a liberal vision. And in proportion to that's taken power, human beings have had less and less say in what goes on. We've become more spoiled, more entitled, more likely to turn something over to somebody else than to do things ourselves. Now that's, it's, anyway, that, that, that was, you know, I just wanted to go through some of the modern political philosophy that's behind this contract. We're not there in the South, except maybe indirectly, because in, in, what, in what Faulkner's doing in the trilogy, he's showing us is that an agrarian world in which people were pretty much left to themselves a new kind of principle has entered into this world that's taking control and a power. And, and in the beginning, as you all know, nobody's doing anything about it. They're watching it. The one person whom I love is Ratliff. And part of the story, from my perspective, is the education of Ratliff. I mean, he, he, you know from my presentation, he's a sewing machine, sewing machine salesman. 
He's an Athena figure. He is constantly putting things together. He's weaving, and he never leaves it that. He does things. The very, in the very opening chapters, he goes out. He tries to do some things. We've talked about it. He tried to beat Flem, remember, at the beginning? Ouch. He tried to beat Flem in that goat's, that goat thing, remember? Mm-hmm. And lost, or tied. Um, he's trying to do something to answer this. Even if he fails, he's at least trying. Um, One question. I mean, yeah. the reality of what a government taking over has been basically Sorry, can you, if there's a band-aid in there? created, basically occurs when we go to war. I mean, whenever we've been at war like World War II, I mean, the government took over everything. It told you how to live, what you, how much you needed, what you, yeah. uh, right. you had no choice. There was no choice in the people saying, should we drop an atomic bomb or shouldn't we drop an right. atomic bomb? Right. The government made that choice. I mean, we surrendered everything during those particular times. And I think government wants and really enjoys war. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Thanks. I got it done. Thanks. Thanks, Mary. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is, you know, I don't know how you, you, you reverse that, reverse that trend because it seems like it's part of our, our what sustains us. Is yeah, well, part of, it's interesting too because the, 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 in the constitutional documents, the president is given those powers. Powers, exactly. Precise, wait, let me, let me try to answer that, Bob. I, I don't want to, oh, yeah, no, I don't okay. want to close this down because yeah, okay. you're asking, big surprise, the two of you <laughs> ask these naughty questions. Um, there's two, by the way, there's two, there's two meanings to naughty. Yes. Define naughty. Marcy, yes. I hope you know who that was directed at. <laughs> good for you guys. Very good. Very good, very um, good guys. <laughs> but, you know, in a marriage, you, you hope that there's a mutual serving. But there are going to be times when you have to make a decision, and a decision has to be made sometimes that's, that won't be in the interest of everybody. No, not everybody's going to agree. There comes time in, a, in the life of a people when decisions have to be made um, that expresses the unit. Like, I mean, take a look at Lincoln, his, his, everything he did to try to avoid war. And then when he, so there, there are times when an executive has to do something. But it raised, and I think the founders knew this, that once that moment happens and you go to war, um, because they experienced it, how do you regroup and retreat and recover and go back to, you know, a a government by the people, for the people, of the people? But that's built into our, the very fabric of our being as a people. And I don't think the enlargement of government powers is just simply due to our going to war. There's an ideology that's directing this enlargement. And, um, and, and in that sense, I would just say, it's not consistent with the spirit or the purpose of the constitutional documents. Let me leave it there, because this is such a huge. Yeah. I'm glad to have people over for dinner <laughs> and spend an evening talking about this. But um, quickly, very quickly, in the Flem episode, we saw the, wait, go back. Remember in Go Down Moses, we saw that one of the um, byproducts of the Civil War was that these three classes of people emerged, the North and the South, even though 
the, the war should have reconciled us. It, in, in some ways it reconciled a law. Should, slavery can't be allowed anymore. But it left fundamental differences in place, which in some ways is not a bad thing because people all over the country are different. North and South, East and West are different cultures in a sense. One of the principles of our, our federating ourselves, making ourselves a people, was to make room for diversity because it was a part of who we were, to bring people together and unify them. So, um, if, and the interesting thing is if diversity becomes more important than unity, where will we go? The, the whole point was to bring different people together in unity. That was our purpose. Um, but a third class emerged. Remember, it was this rootless class, this people who had no connection, no identity with either North or South, and no connection to the land. And what we're seeing in the rise of Flem Snopes is the emergence of this people, this family, this clan, who has no attachments to the land, no attachments to North or South. The one thing that motivates Flem Snopes is self-interest in getting ahead being better than somebody else. He wants to rise. And in that sense, he is an image of something instinctive embedded in the American character. And the, the, the effect of it is to use other people for himself. So in some sense, he's an image early on of what we all know together. I'm gonna to say in ourselves, that it's part of who we are, and in our culture. So the whole book is about coming to terms with this, this American impulse to get ahead, to outdo other people, to be better than everybody else. And you know it ends with Ratliff in a draw. He tries to best Flem Snopes and, and um, they end up in a draw. I'm not gonna give the end away. When, when Mary and I met in the hallways when we were coming in, it's really funny when the way she spoke it. I remember when Suzanne threw a book at me once and I gave her the <laughs> Chesterton's Odyssey because I was orthodox. or orthodox, sorry, the orthodoxy. And I because that that's the book that led me into the church. I said, read this book. She read and she was so angry. I mean, she's so troubled by Chesterton's writing that she threw it at me once. <laughs> My impression of Mary was um, she said, I, I hated, I hated it. I had the impression that she almost threw the book away and she wanted to get on with the town because of what happens with. Ratliff at the end. Yeah, I didn't like where he left it. Don't give it away. But, but, so you might not like the end of this, but just remember, this is all in some ways about the education of Ratliff, and, and um, we've got the town coming up. So Anyway, at the end of Flem section, Ratliff and Flem are a draw. In the Eula section, we saw the emergence of this extraordinarily sexual, beautiful woman. I'm sorry, Mark's not here tonight. Yes, she arouses lust, and yes, lust is not a good thing. I don't, I don't have any question about that. But I also know that, and Christ came into the world for sinners. You know, the response can't just be she made a bad choice or, because she, what goes on with her and those men, to me, is so typical of what goes on with men and women. I mean, I'm assuming, you, I'm, I may raise some eyebrows here, but I'm assuming that most of us in the early stages of our marriage, and maybe even later, know that lust plays a big part in the early part of our lives and so much of our lives in marriages is learning to quiet some. By the way, that's straight out of St. Augustine. Um, one, of his, one of his meditations on marriage was, 
that the first children of marriages are always a pro this is St. Augustine, are always a product of lust. They're always far more lively. <laughs> I mean, everything that comes out of the first shot. The more children you have, the more worn out you get, the quieter you get. Um, anyway, what goes on with Eula is ordinary, except it's intensified because of how extraordinarily beautiful and sexual. And we see what she awakens in men, and it's really important to give that full credit, because if we don't, we take away from the scandal of what happens with Flem when he marries her. That there is this extraordinarily beautiful thing and the South sold out. Um, and, and you know from the long summer that it opens with Ratliff furious. We don't see that at the end of the Eula section, but at the beginning of the long summer, he is really angry. Um, I want to look at that. So some of the major themes are emerging. An agrarian people in its innocence is complicit in what's going on. They're not answering it. They're observing it, watching it. It's almost too subtle for them. The law is inadequate. He's showing us the law is never adequate to finally answer evil. Evil's too subtle, too fine. Flem manages to get around everything. I've talked about this before. The law has as its end good, but there are always limitations in the law. And very often people learn to use the law to their own advantage. And that's particularly true in a commercial regime that rests on law. And I know we all know that, because I know we've all suffered from the stupid things that people do with law. God. Yes? Am I, I mean, I'm assuming I'm speaking for everybody in that, that sometimes you'd like to hang some of these people, because they, they go about, they're so self-righteous that they're living up to the law, and you want to crack their heads and shake them, and, you know, there's more going Huh? Go to Louisiana. You get a, you get a I think you can go, go to California. Go to Texas. You don't you go anywhere. It doesn't matter. Um, okay, that's where we are. A couple of general things that I want to just throw out uh, before we look at the long summer. A couple of wonder thing, wonderful things that, that I've experienced in the reading of Faulkner, again, up to this point. Um, he reminds me of Dickens in, in his presentation of character. He's, he's so detailed in his description of a person's actions in his life that we come to know that person really well. LaBeouf, to me, is a memorable character. Houston, um, everything he did to try to escape Lucy Page. Remember when she was doing everything she could to cheat for him on his papers. And um, Mink's wife was the child born into this um, logging camp to this man who oversaw it and all the um, criminals who were brought in to help run it. The, the woman, the child, grows up and she becomes a, I don't know what to call it, a prostitute to me is not quite the right word, but a, a sold woman. Um, she, she's made available to all the men, sexually. So Mink's wife, um, we get to know her, Mink himself. Um, so Faulkner gives this great community of characters and all of, all of whom are very different, and yet we get to know them from the inside. They become very human. And one of the wonderful things about Faulkner is he's taking us into a world outside the world of middle America and respectability. These are exactly the kind of people people in middle respectability want to stay away from. 
You know, the wealthier and more comfortable you get, the less you want to do with people like this. And I keep thinking about Christ. Unless you feed the poor, unless we go to prisons and visit the prisoners. That is, who wants to do that when you come into a bourgeois world? One, one of Francis's great serious concerns about the church is it's become so bourgeois, it's too comfortable. He asks us to go out. Fogger's presenting us with all these... Benji, an idiot. Ike, wooing a cow. You know, Mink um, slapping his wife viciously, turning with a gun, and her knowing he's going to kill somebody. And I love the scenes when she comes back. She's going to leave. She's going to leave her husband. And when he comes back to see her, when he's told that she's got money for him, she's, what did she said? I wish, God, I'm going to read the lines, but she's saying, I wish they'd let me hang you and bring you back to life again and hang you again and bring you back and hang you. <laughs> and you know that she's, what she's saying is, I love you, I love you, I love you. I mean, he, 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 he takes us into these scenes where we experience exactly what goes on in our world, because we know this is going on everywhere. All of this stuff happens. And we get to know this, and it's part of this action of this country growing into itself, finding out who it is, uh, dealing with this evil. It's pretty clear to me that Faulkner has read Dickens. Um, because he has that same sense of exaggeration and he presents all these characters. And I think it's pretty clear that he's read Dostoevsky. If any of you have read Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, you know that it's about a man named um, Raskolnikov who commits a murder. And the greater part of that, that story has to do with Raskolnikov committing this murder and then trying to cover it up as the police investigate it. And he meets this young woman whose name is Sonia. She's an image of grace. She's a prostitute. He got this from Dostoevsky. Dickens would never, Dickens would not have done that. Well, actually he does in Nancy and Oliver Twist. Nancy's, I think Nancy belongs to a house of prostitution. But it goes so much deeper in Dickens and, and now it does in Faulkner. Um, at the end of Crime and Punishment, Sonia's influence on Raskolnikov is absolute. He undergoes a conversion. She says, he finally confesses his sin because it's tormenting him to death. I mean, actually tearing him apart. She says, go to the crossroads and kneel down and kiss the earth. When you read that scene, you almost want to cry. He's done everything in his life to avoid this moment. And he comes to it and finally confesses his sin, and he's freed. Finally. Mink has something of that in him. He kills Houston. And you know in the last part of the section, he does everything he can to cover up that body. And it's, it's so real. I mean, Faulkner describes everything. We're there in the, we're there in everything that goes on. So he has this amazing ability to take us into the different lives of these different people and flesh them out so that they become a part of our lives. I think, in one sense, he's the most Catholic, Catholic writer in America. And you, you know by that I mean because everybody's in the book. He's not Jane Austen. It's not this social, polite world. He's unfolding the world as it is. And he's helping us to know people that ordinarily would not be a part of our social lives. So it seems to me, in my mind, he's much closer to Christ and the love that Christ wants us to bring to the world. He's the most Catholic democratic writer, I think, in the 20th century. Um, the major themes, again, as we're moving forward, um, it's the putting to order the South, but in more particularly in uh, 
in uh, the long summer section, it's Ratliff growing up again because he's having to learn to deal with more and more evil. Um, um, he's having to suffer the consequences of Eula having been married off. And we're learning to see two things that are of major importance. One of them is um, we're learning to see the real nature of courtship because as I said in Sound of the Fury, the medieval Catholic ideal of courtship has vanished. And it's left humans with no love conventions. The world has been taken over by business conventions. People are driven to work. They don't know what love is. Um, we saw a glimpse of it in Ike. I mean, uh, Benji, remember, is constantly running out to see if um, Caddy was returning. Now we get it full-blown. Um, I love this section. Um, you know when it starts, we're, we're, we're presented the, this, this lover waiting for the beloved in this spring with flowers and nature all around. And it's only after a page and a half or so that we realize that the beloved that's coming is a cow. Faulkner knows exactly what he's doing. And if you watch that episode, you're watching in a, in a parody, obviously a parody, because it doesn't exist any longer, the sort of thing that we would hope would go on between a lover and his beloved. He pursues her, she runs away. Do you remember? First is to flee. Um, um, he tries to decorate her, she resists. He goes after her, she runs. Um, he finally succeeds in getting her. Houston comes, who is so outraged at what's going on that he sends him away. Houston will come later, and this is after the fire, remember when, oh, and he rescues her. So there it is. Pursue the beloved, she runs away. Pursue her some more, she runs away. When she's in danger, he rescues her. And it's only after that that he can finally present himself as the lover and the two go off. And what do they do on that one scene? They go off into the sunset. And in every one of those passages when Faulkner presents him, they're in tune with nature. In a way, the rest of the world is not. Not Houston, not Lebov, not the, certainly not the snow, well, except me for maybe X. And we'll come to X because of what he does at the end. So what Faulkner's doing is setting this parody of the Christian ideal of courtly romance next to a world that has become mechanical and inhuman. That's one. And the other is to watch what happens when men are left alone in this honor code. And we see what happens there because Mink kills Houston. He's so outraged at what happens in that court decision that he kills him. And then we get that long chapter showing him going through all that he has to go through. And in the center of it, it's no accident. Remember, Lump comes to him because Lump knows that Houston had $50 in his pocket. Lump's only concern, dig up the courts, corpse so he can get the money. I hope everybody's seeing this. So Faulkner's right on, I mean, you, whatever you think, he, he's, he's showing us what happens to the commercial regime when money is allowed to become more important than love. And his name comes from Lancelot. Lancelot, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And you remember what, <laughs> do you remember what Ratliff, by the way, there's a real parody, I will come to it in a second, there's a real parody in what Ratliff is doing with language. Do you remember what he first calls him? Lancelot. Encore. And then he realizes that wasn't what I meant. What he meant was, um, what was the second word? 
And he comes up with another word. He said it was really, oh, uh, no, echo. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, he said, I meant echo, not encore. And he says, no, I didn't mean that. I meant forgery. I mean, there's a parody of what's going on with language there. Really, Faulkner is so aware. If you watch characters here, what they do, what we do, we very often use language to obfuscate, to cloud, as a way of hiding ourselves. And I, 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 there's this wonderful movie that I saw years ago called Beyond the Gates. I'd recommend it to everybody. It's about this Catholic compound in, uh, in uh, Uganda during the purges. It's a Catholic compound with savages who are doing these ethnic cleansing tribal battles, killing each other. The United Nations surround the compound to help them, and finally the United Nations draws them out. And they do it because the Western nations are quibbling, quibbling over the meaning of the word ethnic cleansing. Because they can't come to a definition, they get them out. You watch the Western mind in its head, the cowardice of the modern Western intellectual, doing everything he can to avoid wars, battles, risking life. And then this compound is savagely, I mean, they take machetes. I mean, we, we witness some of it. It's a, we watch them cut up these kids, you know, and the priest and the kids. And, um, and at the center of this is these Western intellectuals quibbling about words when there are all these human lives in danger. This whole opening section of the long summer is partly a critique of language, what people do with language. I'll, we'll get to it in a second. Those are some of the, I think those are some of the major themes. Um, remember two of the important things that emerge in this section is, is that women are clearly far more capable of loving, more able to love than men. Men are going to kill each other, they will quarrel, they will try to get ahead. Um, Lucy Pate can't do enough for Houston. He does everything he can to run away. She's still there at the end. And then once they marry and she dies, and who kill, what kills her? A stallion. Now stop and think about that. Houston, Ike. The stallion, the cow. Lucy, the stallion. Faulkner keeps showing us these feminine and masculine images. The, the cow is farmer nurturing, milking, offering milk. She's an image of that stasis that I spoke about before, that giving out of herself. Um, the men are always trying to get ahead using. Lucy's killed by that stallion. It's not an accident. She's absolutely loyal to him. Mink Snope's wife was being sold. I mean, she was used to pleasure these men. Um, she is unfailing in her loyalty to him. He beats her, slaps her, he goes off to kill Houston, he comes back because he's told to go meet her. She's furious with him, but she won't leave him. And when he's put in jail, and Faulkner makes such a point of it, nobody from that family, nobody from that family comes to visit. His wife and the children are there every day. We've talked about this since The Sound of the Fury. M Molly put it all in the story. The white people are too concerned about respectability. They're paralyzed by it. The black people grow up with humility. They're humbled. I mean, they endure. They're the ones who suffer through. The women are there. I think about the women of the cross. As far as I know, John was the only one there at the cross. All the others 
I'm not sure that we know otherwise. We know John was there, but where were the others? The women were there. Where were the, where were the men? Um, so Faulkner's treatment of the male-female thing is essential to this with Eula, with Phlegm, with um, um, Lucy Pate, Mink's wife, and then the men and what they're doing. Okay, so and those are some of the compares them say, to the land. You know, women are compared to the land a lot. It can you remember like, a passage? Can you give it? Um, I just remember, uh, you know, just the, the land as it's abused and over over farmed, and the yeah. trees are cut down. And I was thinking of, I was just thinking of how that compared with with the women are mm -hmm. the same, treated the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they both endure. The land has a result yeah. that it endures. Yeah, and over and over again, I'm going to read a couple of passages. I don't know that it'll go quite to that point, John, but over and over again, exactly when you think Faulkner is going to give us a metaphor or an illusion about light coming from the sky, he almost always said, he did this in Go Down Moses. I remember reading a couple of passages. He always talks about it as emanating from the earth, coming out of the earth. Because, that, because why? Because that's where all the dead souls are. It's like there's this afterlife spirit, that there's this something from the earth, that it never finally disappears. The earth is life-giving, light-giving. Um, okay, let's, let's look at a... Let me stop for a second. Any, any, any questions on what we're doing or its sort of general importance? I hope you guys are enjoying this. It's an extraordinary work. A lot of violence, but it's good. It's hard, I think. It is. It's hard. It is. Yes. Bless your soul for staying with it. <laughs> any any questions or I don't know much about his childhood. I've not read a biography on him, but from what I know of him through his writings, I, I can say a couple of things. I've said, some of them I've said already. It's hard for me to imagine Faulkner not having read Dickens and Dostoevsky. It's hard for me to imagine him not loving reading growing up um, in a way that made him different from other kids, that he would have loved to read and there was something in him loving it so much that he would write. His, his earliest writings are poetry, lyric, not narrative, but he comes to write narrative. And you know that there's a strong lyric quality because he, he works it into his narratives all the time. We know that in, uh, as he matured as a writer, he, he struggled with drinking, that he would write. And I've, I've already commented, I mean, some people are very critical of him. It's not the way I feel about him. It's just, my thought is anybody who had to endure this to do what he did would be driven to drink. He went through periods after the writing of the novels, the major novels. He'd go, he'd go through a period where, where he, um, what do you call it, those, um, where you go to sober up? Detox. What is it? Detox. Detox, yeah, whatever they were called then, yeah. The, 
rehab. I mean, that, that he had to go through because I think it had to be overwhelming for him. And I think it became less and less of a problem. He loved this girl in high school. She married another man who was abusive and divorced him and they finally married. She had serious drinking problems. Um, and you can see the two of them maturing in age. I mean, when he died, um, she wrote this tender letter about letting the family enjoy the privacy of their love of this, her husband. And then she would give him to the world because he belonged to the world because he was loved everywhere, he was read. Wagner was one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. The, so many people learned to write stories from him. And I think what was essential to his writing, you touched on it, I don't think a writer could have done what he did who didn't grow up in the South with, with its anecdotal character. You can almost not go anywhere in the South in its agrarian nature and not hear stories everywhere. You know, to sit down on a porch and he had to grow up with men on a porch or on a farm hearing stories all day long. And it's hard, it's hard to read these stories without getting a sense they all made their way into his fiction. And it gave him a sense of the differences between human. He was so observant about human differences. And all of that goes into his writing. And he just did an extraordinary thing. Very southerner. Very southerner. Somebody from the North, I don't think, could have done this. It seems to me, too, that he, both from reading um, Sound of the Fury and this. And Go Down Moses. And Go Down Moses. That he must have had an intimate acquaintance First. with, a personal acquaintance with people who were mentally challenged, mm -hmm. developmentally disabled yeah. people. Because he writes about them so well, you know. Yeah. and. I don't think that you can do that if you haven't really lived with something mm -hmm. like that. And yeah, um, Jeannie, and, and I'll, to add to that, it's, it's, it's hard for me to see him do what he's done without having been extremely sensitive. Because mm -hmm. so lots of people can be around handicapped or, mm -hmm. or disabled people and, and not ever get to a point of doing what Faulkner did. And I think that's one of the reasons that he had to have a, an, an acute sensitivity to the language, to hear the language that people use, to watch character, to feel their characters, to be able to go into the depths and still survive it, endure it. Let me tell you, okay, um, I psychologically evaluate learning disabled children and I supervise their classes. And um, you're correct because that's what I thought. So I went back and researched all of Faulkner's family tree to look for someone who was, who had been found to be mentally deficient, and I did not find any. Yeah. And I searched his whole family Interesting. tree. Interesting, yeah, yeah. And the other thing that's along these lines, personal character, he, we talked about this in the other stories, but it's, since we're putting some of this stuff together, he grew up like Quentin. He grew up with a sense of, of having people in his past who were looked at as heroes that he had to live up to, like so many young men in the South. And remember, that's after they lost the war. So I think it was hard for, and I, this is picking up all that you're saying, um, that 
to grow up in the South, um, having the kind of sensitivity and intelligence that Faulkner, and I'm thinking about Alan Tate, who was the same way. Um, you grow up with a sense of, of a defeat, of a way that's lost. You, you live with a sense of defeat around you. It's, it's what you bear. And you're aware of men who sacrifice their lives and probably second-guess yourself all the time because you're not doing the same thing and you're not facing the kind of heroic circumstances that they did. I, I, I remember going over this a little bit in, I think it was probably when we did go, go down Moses. Faulkner went off, he, he enlisted in the army here and was rejected because of a disability, I think, in his leg. He went to Canada to join the Air Force. And he never flew, but he came back and told these stories of what he did in the Air Force. So he lived with this sense of a nobility that was a part of the past, very much like Quentin, um, but with a sense of a new world, a new world that made no place for that kind of heroism anymore. Um, so there's this love of great things, but, but also at the same time of Whatever this means, maybe this great love of people outside the respectable community, because it's as if, it's as if the respectable community has arrested itself. It lives in paralysis um, because he, you know, he has so much good to say about Benji. We may not like Minx here or Lebov, but we, we get to know these characters. We don't know much about any of the respectable people in Jefferson. We're knowing an agrarian peasant community. It's the poor, it's the lower class, and what goes on in their lives. Quickly, I want to just... Um, when the second section opens, remember Ratliff and Varner meet. Ratliff's on his way to hear this case between Houston and Mink. And Ratliff goes along. Mink is taking Houston to jail because he's keeping his cow for an impound fee. You all know that, right? Um, Mink allowed the cow to go free because he didn't have enough graze to feed it. So he let it go knowing that it would feed on um, Houston's pasture and that he, when, when the time was over he could come give it and his, his cow wouldn't have died. He has no money, he's poor, he's an itinerant farmer, he lives off of nothing, he's, he's practically starving, we know that. Um, remember that the first time we were introduced to Mink was earlier when, when um, Ratliff went to see him and, and he was feeling him out saying he came to sell a sewing machine when he didn't and then Ink, or Mink ends up buying it and then pulls out that note um, that Ratliff uses with, to, to, to get one up on uh, Flem. But here we're, we're getting to know Mink up close. Um, the judge Varner finds in favor of, of Houston, he won't let the cow go until Mink pays, what is it, $3, a $3 pound fee? The irony of that is that there's no, way, there's no way Mink can do that. He doesn't have the money. So he's stuck and he knows that. So here, here again is this sort of injustice that the poor live under. Um, when Ratliff, when the men come out and he learns about the verdict, he, he almost goes nuts. I want to come back to the scene because it's really interesting to see what he does. A little boy comes in to let everybody know that something's happening in this barn, so all the men leave. 
And that's when Ratliff talks with Book, Bookwright and he finds out, we find out later that what happens is Lump, I think it's Lump, is opening, has opened a board and he's starting, he's starting a peep show so that men can look in and see what Ike is doing with a cow. I'm assuming some kind of sodomy is going on. I don't think they're charging yet, but I, if I'm correct on that, but it's pretty clear that at some point Lump would charge. It, it's the beginnings of pornography in this small country world. Um, and it's at that point when Ratliff sets off to see what's going on that we're taken to the cow episode with Ike. And then there's that long section describing all that Ike does with the cow, the, the wooing that, that in, in my mind is so touching. Um, <clears throat> Houston comes back, and this is section three, Houston comes back to see the cow gone. Um, he, he wants to kill the cow, he goes to Little John, intending to kill the cow, to feed it to Ike because they think that's the way to cure him. But instead of telling Mrs. Little John that, he, he doesn't, he goes on to water the horse. But we get, we get the story of the, the man who owns the barn um, that Ike came to to steal the feed, to feed the cow. And it's interesting how similar this man and Houston are. They're both hard, rigid, um, they have this self-righteous tendency to be angry. The man cares nothing about the, the feed or getting vengeance. He only wants the reward money. So he goes, he takes, um, he waits in the morning for Ike to return. When Ike does, he takes Ike and, and gives the cow back to little John. When, when he turns around to look for Ike, um, I mean to Houston, when he turns around to look for Ike, Ike's gone. Um, that section ends with um, Ratliff boarding up, nailing up the board, remembering, telling him to get out of there, and he has that exchange with Bookwright, where Bookwright says, you look, now, now I, I want to have to say this, Bookwright didn't look. Some people are critical of Ratliff that he looks. You know, you can come down either side here. My own feeling about this is, it was important for Ratliff to see what was there, and if you watch, Bookwright doesn't nail up the board. Ratliff does, because he sees what's going on. In my own mind, that's a part of his learning. He has to see this. So it's not like voyeurism. Uh, when he sees what's going on, he nails it up, he tells the men to go out, the show's over. He's angry. And then there's exchange with Bookwright where Ratliff actually says, I am a Pharisee. I didn't mean says, you know, that he, he, it's a part, wonderful part of his, he's so honest about. Um, and then it ends with, um, because I think Houston instigated this, he wanted to kill the cow to serve the meat up to Ike as a way of curing the idiot. This minister comes together with I.O. and Eck to pull together the money to pay for the cow. And if you remember, that chapter ends with I.O. making that argument because there's four of Eck and his family, I think he has wife and two or three children. There's four in him, or five, <laughs> but he has to pay five times as much as I.O. So he's, he's getting, I.O. is once again, and he's screwing his family. It's his cousin. Because it should be the reverse. Because he's got five, he's got more to take care of, so he should pay less. And Eck is uneducated. He can't figure that out. And, and um, Ratliff is watching it. You know, watching, he's watching this thing happen in this culture that's becoming pervasive, and it ends that way. Chapter 2, 
um, takes us back to Houston. We get the, stu the story between him and Lucy Kate, and you know that she does everything to, to help him graduate. He gets more and more furious. He runs away, I think, for 12 years. I can't remember, 12 years, and he comes back. She's still there, and they, they marry, and he loves her. And then one day when she's in the barn feeding the cow, the, the horse, this masculine stallion kills her. Fittingly, it's a stallion. And um, um, the next section begins in a beautiful way because after the story of Houston, we suddenly get this shot being, this noise making, and Houston coming out of the saddle. We have no clue what's going on, but as we read the next paragraph, we learn that Mink shot him. And he will take the body, and you know that there's this long story. He hides him in a tree stump and then goes back. Lump comes to, to tell him he doesn't want to lose this money, and, and Mink does everything he can to shake him. He beats over the head once. Another time he beats him over the head and ties him up. Um, he keeps escaping and coming back until finally the sheriff arrives because he's late into the morning on this, I think it's the third day, and they take him to jail. On the way to jail, he tries to throw himself into the wheel, if I'm reading that correctly, to kill himself. He fails, almost breaks his neck. They take him to jail, and he's in jail, and then the, the chapter two ends, the, this whole section called The Long Summer ends, with um, Ike coming to get um, um, Mink's wife, who was staying, I guess, at um, Varner's, and um, having her and the children stay with him. So he's gone from an observer to testing himself out with, with Flynn, remember, with the goats, and losing. And now he's actively stepping in to offer help. And we know that she's got this job at this hotel cleaning, but some guy makes this comment that she's running back and forth, um, blistering her heels because she's running back. The assumption is that she's a prostitute and making money on the side in these hotels with all these men. And Ratliff's attitude is he doesn't care, doesn't want to know, it's not going to change. Um, she, each week or every couple of weeks, she brings money and there's always an additional amount. It seems, the implication seems clear, Ratliff never asks. He, he wants to help. And the whole force of that end is the wife and the children are, and so is Mink, waiting for Flem Snopes. Because the belief is that it's only when he comes because of his influence that they can get a lawyer who will help Mink get out of jail. So we're watching a couple of things, and, the, and the, this second chapter ends with Ratliff taking his horse in to be shooed and seeing the idiot in the barn. And the idiot's got... Whoa. Somebody must not have liked that. <laughs> Leave it on. Um, that's okay. Um, the idiot's in the barn, drooling, and, and but he's got this effigy of a cow, as if he has a substitute for the thing. And um, and I goes and asks Eck to um, shoe his horse and um, made some comment about the effigy, the little figure of the cow. And X response is he gave it to him. Remember, he was, one, he was the one who was cheated by I.O. about the money. Um, he wanted to give it to him because he felt sorry for him. So a couple of things are emerging. One is the, the Snopes family is growing, 
But something else is happening. We learn in the middle of this that I.O. fled because his wife came with a child. He's leaving town. And Eck, one, one of these Snopes, in an unheard way, is tender about this idiot. So something's happening that's going both ways. The Snopes are spreading. Some are fleeing because they, I.O. doesn't want responsibility. And the, the last images of the wife pursuing him. And um, Mink Snopes' wife remaining faithful. We're waiting to see what will happen. And Eck feeling the sympathy for this idiot. So is everybody aware that there's a, there's a complexity to the way things are unfolding? It's not a black-white. Something evil is permeating the Southern culture. It's, it's taking root and it's affecting the way everybody does everything. Um, but in itself, it's also dividing against itself. Um, we've seen the cousins go against themselves. Mink um, has killed a man. Ratliff is convinced, knows, we should know, Flem will not come back. So the family's not holding together, and at least in the case of Eck, we see that one Snopes has a heart. And so this is where we're left at the, in the third part of this book. Okay? One last thing, too, because it goes to this whole thing of images. You've got this effigy here. You've got Ratliff dealing with language in a passage I want to look at in just a second. One of, the, one of the descriptions he has in that opening section of the Long Summer, when the, courtroom, when the courtroom is emptied and all the men are coming out, he's talking with Bookwright and he's describing somebody taking a sign and painting a picture of the shelves in a store and setting it next to a bed. And he describes this woman, a black woman, coming in from the field, this woman coming in to buy something, and then going and lying down behind the counter, if you remember, and Mink coming in, locking the, or Flem coming in, locking the door, and then going over to her. And, um, and the only time she could see the, this picture of cans is when Flem would move his head. And I re this is, hold on to this, because I think it's really important. That image is like the image on Plato's cave. She's looking not at a real store, it's a painting of exactly what a store looks like. And it's clear that she doesn't know the difference. She doesn't know what's inside those cans, she's only heard of it. They're like shadows on the wall. So everything about it shows people trapped in a cave, they're living by appearances, particularly the woman on the floor. And remember, it's set next to a bed. I think that's Ratliff's way of helping us to see exactly the nature of what's going on between Flem and Eula. Flem is a sexless, sexless, unerotic man. He does not know desire. And we have to feel the, 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 the magnitude of that. Remember, because what she did was only awaken, all she could do is awaken desire in him because of her beauty. So everybody around her is going through the roof in lusts, except Flem. He has no desire. There's nothing human that way in him. But it's a, and she, she's paid for the, what she came for, I think the lard that she came for. And she looks at the door as if it's the only way to escape. And the only way to escape is to present herself as a sexual object for the men who are going to come by in the counter. And then the scene ends with her saying when, when, when Snopes moves his head, she said, what's, some, what's the cost of one of those sardines? 
if that's confusing, let me just give you my reading of this. I think it's an image of the cave. It's an image of, remember, this is by the bedside. It's an image of sex being commuted into a form of commercial monetary exchange. That the sexual act has been replaced by a commercial act. That business is, give me just one minute, um, it's been replaced. When she says at the end, what do those sardines cost, or however she put that, remember Eula's young, I think she's about 16, somewhere in there. She's got the body of a 30-year-old, but she's young. She's married off. She's had all these ideas about marriage. She, she says she's looking at these sardines and wanting them. She says, what would you, what, what would you charge for those, or what does it cost for those? There's something there she wants, yeah? She only wants to know the cost. So it's as if, for her, there's something in marriage that's still worth buying. There's something still she wants, but it's left in terms of what she'll have to pay to get it. So I think it's Ratliff's way of showing how the sexual act has so conscripted, so, so narrowed itself in an inhuman way. And it's his picture of what will what's taking place between Flem? Because the last thing that Flem can do is make love to a woman, and Eula's in this awful position of um, being married and wondering what marriage is. Um, there must be some good in it. What's the cost of it? That's how that ends. We'll find out in, in um, the town, I can't go there yet, but something's gonna happen with Eula and her, her daughter, Linda, because Linda, Linda Snopes, is, is going to figure in a major, major way her daughter in the town and the nation. But let me leave. I want to just read a couple of quotes and then we'll stop. Or, sorry, did you? I was trying to make the jump from the, uh, the purchase of the fat. Yeah. It was put in the log book as the picture of a pig. And what I thought that was trying to tell us was that there was a dishonest recording of what was given to the woman. In other words, it could have been interpreted as a side of pork in the legend. Yeah. Even though it was something much less than that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you get to her laying down behind the counter. counter there. Yeah. And that would be totally in addition to the sale, which was already recorded in the book. Yeah. Her disadvantage. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's a really degrading scene. It's, and it's interesting to watch, you know, that we, we talked about the end of the Eula section with uh, Ratliff's vision of Phlegm and Hell, taking over Hell. It's a comic parody, but if you look at what's happening, it's pretty serious. I mean, Phlegm is, evil undoes itself. The very nature of evil, as he's shown it, is that we have to watch in the story to see how evil, what's going to happen with this evil? You know, who's, will, will anybody be able to, I mean, in some sense, this is a detective series. Will Ratliff be able to, truly, it's, it's a detective story. Who, will anybody be able to deal with this guy? Because, and in the town, it's funny, I can't give this away. He's, he's going to beat, and he's going to beat again and again and again and again as he goes up the ladder. Except for a couple of things, I can't go into it, but. But it's a detective story. Who's going to best him? You know, he's so inhuman. The vision shows that, and here, that picture of this girl behind the counter, 
who doesn't know any better comes in to, to pays and then lays down knowing that the only way she can get out of it is if she gives herself. And then ask the question, you know, um, what's the cost of those sardines? Or, you know, I mean, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a sardonic, very detached way of, of showing. As a young girl, she doesn't know any better than to ask. Just, it's as if that's a metaphor for, there must be some good in marriage. What do I pay for that? You know, because she's 16 and she's married and now she's entered into marriage. What does she know what's ahead of her at this age? I mean, in some sense, she can't. She's too young. Um, let me um, turn to... Um, um, this is... If you turn to um, 178, 179, this is the very beginning of the long summer when they, the men come out of the courtroom and... Um, Ratliff and Bookwright um, meet for a moment at the top of 179. Um, Varner found in favor of Houston and nothing was done on the side of the plaintiff, that's Mink, and I.O. apparently was his lawyer and got shut up right away. And this is really interesting. I, I think we're meant to hold on to all this. Varner has just married, the Snopes have married into his family. So he's got something to protect, and yet he finds in favor of Houston against Snopes. And I can't imagine Varner's happy about that. He's angry about the whole thing. Um, Bookwright and Ratliff are talking, well, well, Ratliff said, well, well, well. You can see the sardonic guy musing over this. So Will couldn't do nothing to the next succeeding Snopes but stop him from talking. Not that anybody could have done any good anyway. Snopes can come and Snopes can go, but Will Varner looks like he is fixing to Snopes forever. Or Varner will Snopes forever. Take your pick. I don't, if I'm reading that correctly, I don't think there's a choice. That, that is, he's either going to live in, remember that what he's doing right now is, is parodying I.O. Because I.O. can only speak in platitudes. There's nothing he can say that isn't a platitude. And Ratliff, Ratliff is mimicking him right now. That either Varner will live in a platitude, which is eternal, it's that that's the nature of a, it's it's mindless and forever, or he will snopes forever. Take your pick. I, if I'm reading that right, it's I'm I'm a little bit troubled by this, but but he doesn't like what's going on. What is it the fellow says? Off with the old, on with the new, the jug. That is, it's 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 verbiage, it's words covering up everywhere. That's what Io does. And Ratliff's doing it right now, he's so angry. Off with the old, on with the new, the old job at the old stand. Maybe a new fellow doing the jobbing, but it's the same old stern getting ringed out. Bookwright was looking at him. If you would stand closer to the door, he could hear you. He'd better. He said, sure, Ratliff doesn't care. Right now, he's so angry. Surely, Ratliff said, big ears have little pictures. The world beats it. I mean, that Faulkner could do this is an amazing... I mean, look at what Faulkner's doing. He could not have... Mary goes back... He, how could he have done this unless he grew up with all these adages? And it, it reminds me of uh, Jason. Jason was full of these adages. You know, it, it shows you that men can use words in a way that shows they're not even thinking. I hope that's clear. It looks like they're saying something, but they're not. Big ears have little pictures. The world beats a trap to a rich man's hog pen, but it ain't every family has a new lawyer, not to mention profit. 
Waste not, want not, except that a full waste don't need no prophecy to prophecy a prophet, and just whose? <laughs> I, don't, I, I think it, we're meant to read this and laugh, and also get angry, because Ratliff is about ready to lose it. He's losing it. Now they were all watching it, the smooth, impenetrable face with something about the eyes and the lines beside the mouth, which they could not read. Look here, Bookwright said. What's the matter with you? Why, nothing, Ratliff said. What could be wrong with nothing, nowhere, nohow in this year, best of all possible worlds? Likely the same folks that sells him the neckties will have a pair of long black stockings, too. And any sign painter can paint him a screen to set up alongside the bed to look like looking up at a wall full of store shelves of canned goods. Here, Bookwright said, they're all worried about him. This is when he gives the picture or the story of the girl buying them. Um, Ratliff is furious, and you, you know that he's on the way. This child comes in and says the show's starting, and they all leave. And, um, and it's at that point that we get this interlude. We go to the Ike story with Ike wooing the cow. Turn to 182. And watch the way time changes. I, I don't know that we're going to have time here, but watch the way time changes. And everything that happens between Ike and the cow becomes more one with nature than is true of the men who are trying to impose their will on nature. It's, it's what I think Joan was saying a while ago. Middle of 182. April was the actual thin, depthless suspension of false dawn itself, in which he could already see and know himself to be an entry solid and cohered in visibility instead of the uncohered all sentience of fluid and nerve springing terror, alone and terribly free in the primal, sightless inevitality. He's not against nature. As a lover, he has stepped into nature. There's nothing inimical. He's become one with it. He coheres with it. Um, that was gone now. Now the tear existed only during the moment after the false dawn. He waits for the beloved on the next page, at the top of the page. He could smell her. The whole mist reeked with her, the same malleate hands of mist which drew along his prone drenched flanks, palped her pearl barrel too, and shaped them both somewhere in immediate time. Already married, he could not move. Stop for a second. When you all read this, I tried to do everything I could not to give it away. When you all read this, did you know it was a cow coming? No. We no, did, good. We had just talked about Eula, and I thought, well, maybe somebody's like, yeah, good. like watching her. Yeah, good, good, good. I think um, he would lie among the waking instant of Earth's teeming minute life, the motionless fronds of water, heavy grasses stooping into the midst before his face in black fixed curves, along each parabola of which the marching drops held in minute magnification the dawn's rosy miniatures, smelling and even tasting the rich slope. You can't, can you get any more sensuous to be one with a sensuous world? He's not in his head. He's, he's absolutely one with this nature, this feck of nature. And then, you know, the, we finally learned that it's um, the cow on page 188, this is funny. Even when he leaves the cow and goes back to work, while he's working, he can't think of anything else but the beloved. I, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I just thought all the stages of romance. When we're in, when I, I can remember in high school when you think about taking out a girl, and your knees shake and you pursue her, and she plays hard to get her. She does, 
and then you pursue her and she flees, or, 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 the, or you go off to work, and instead of keeping your mind on your work, your mind's on her. You know, and then he sees the smoke, and then in terror he flees because he doesn't want any harm coming. So everything that's here is a picture of a beloved that once was, in a sense, almost a normal thing. But now it's in the body of an idiot. Um, um, turn to, to 1898. We're going to have to stop here in a second, but I wanted you to... These are some of the passages that stood out to me that, that Faulkner uses to describe what's going on around them as this wooing. Remember, I called it a hymen, hymeneal from the hymen, hymeneal. So that's, that's, that's actually a name of a kind of a song. It's the kind of a song that was played with the understanding that it took place during the act of sex on the night of marriage. 198, towards the bottom. They were in the hills now among pines. Although the afternoon had fallen, the shaggy crest still made a constant murmuring sound in the high serene air. The trunks and the massage foliage were the harps and strings of afternoon. I hope that's clear. The harps and strings of afternoon Musical instruments have been assimilated into nature. They're of the afternoon, of a time. Is that clear? They're not They're the harps and strings of the afternoon. It's like it's like Manly Hopkins when he said, "The wind hover." Of, how does that go? Of the of the of kingdom's daylights, dauphin. The wind hover is of the morning, of the dawn. He belongs to that feet, that that the rising of the sun. Sound of the high sense, the trunks and the massy foliage were the harps and strings of afternoon. The barred and constant shadow of the day's retrograde flowed steadily over them as they crossed the ridge and descended into shadow, into the azure bowl of evening, the windless well of night, the portcullis of sunset fell behind them. It's all the stuff that's ceremonial of a wedding feast. Um, it reminds me of um, Song of Solomon. It's, it's like it's right out of that. Um, 200, middle of the page. Now he watches the recurrence of that which he discovered for the first time three days ago. That dawn light is not decanted onto earth from the sky, but instead is from the earth itself suspired. Dawn comes from the earth. It's just, it's an inversion. Everything that's going on is an inversion of our whole way of reading the world. Roofed by the woven canopy of blind, annealing grass roots and the roots of trees, dark in the blind tark of time's silt and rich refuse, the constant and unslumbering anonymous worm glut and the inextricable known bones, Troy's Helen and the nymphs and the storing mitered bishops, the saviors and the victims and the kings, it wakes up seeping attritive in uncountable creeping channels, first root, then frond by frond. It's like the earth is coming into life. Everything's inverted. They're a part of the earth. Wait, wait, and stop. We know from the Protestant mind, we know this from all these men who are described how rigid and self-righteous and inflexible they are, that the earth is maternal, giving. Christ came into time to make the earth sacred again, even though it was created good by God. So according to a Catholic view, there's nothing in the earth that shouldn't be sacred. 
Is that the attitude we have towards sex today? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, one last one, and then I'll stop because we've got to stop for the night. 205. You know that he, he takes her, um, he's trying to flee to be sure he's not caught, and he has to be careful from her. He takes her into the, the shade near the water to, to give her water and food. He steals the food so that she can eat. At the top of the fuse, um, his overalls are heavy and dank and cold upon him, a lifeless chill which is no kin to the vivid wet of the living water which was carried into and still retains within the very mud. The boundless freedom of the garden, the golden air, as that same air glitters in the leaves and branches which glow in countless minute repetition, the intact and iridescent cosmos. God, it's beautiful. I mean, they are one with this beauty in nature. Why? Because when you love, when the, one of the Beatitudes, you know, bless, um, what is it? What's the first one? The, 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 the one in, who shall inherit the earth? The, the meek. Blessed, the meek shall inherit the earth. Because once you give up your possessions, truly, once you give up your possessions and stop holding on to them, if you're there, what is it that's not ours? And you stand, I mean, that was St. That was Saint Francis. He gave up all of his wealth, and it was brother, son, sister, moon. Because when you love... Wasn't that part of the problem with the Indians? They couldn't fathom someone owning the earth. That just boggled. Like they would say, we want, to, we want this land, and they're like, how can you own life? Yeah. Like the Indians can, or some of the tribes could not wrap Yeah, but, yeah, land. right. Well, some of them that way, I mean, they believed the earth was holy, and... Right. The nature spirits were there, but they were also at war with each other about areas and um, anyway, this yeah. so this description of the beauty, the boundless freedom and the golden air that I don't think it's an accident. It's because there's no other way to feel nature if what takes your soul is love. They walk in splendor, joined by the golden skein of the weight grass rope. They move in single fire towards the ineffable effulgence directly into the sun. They are still pacing it. They mount the final ridge. They will arrive together. At the same moment, all three of them cross the crest and descend into the bowl of evening and are extinguished. Could I remember what I said about um, Benji? Could Benji have ever described what Faulkner was describing of him? in terms of his own experiences. Never could Ike ever describe this. Faulkner's helping us into the soul of an idiot who's in love. He's an idiot. Everything he's doing is in violation of everything the, the ordinary world thinks is normal. And, and they're going to kill this cow. Remember what they did with Benji. They castrated him. They're going to kill this cow because they think it's the way to heal him of this perversion. It's sodomy. Um, let me just stop here, just a quick word. Um, I don't think, I hope I've got to be careful. I don't think Faulkner's endorsing sodomy. I don't think that's what's going on here. I hope, I hope everybody's clear in that. What he's doing is, is showing something that does happen, but he's using it as a way of throwing a light on the conventional bourgeois world because of what we let happen. So, you know, everything that goes on with the cows and the horses and with mink 
it is a way of reflecting on, I'll come to this again, I'll, I'll, I'll pick it up when we first begin next week and close it up, but everything that he shows us in some sense is a way of throwing a light on the world of justice and enterprise as we know it. So I don't think we're meant to think that Faulkner is endorsing sodomy. It's his way of, sh of helping us to see what we've lost um, by showing something foolish because we're afraid to be foolish ourselves or, or something like that. Any questions or? Who's the third? Say. It says the three of them. The sun. The sun. And the cow and I. They're all, they're all, yeah, and it's and being extinguished. It's just, it's, it, um, it's, I mean, I, there, we could take, we could take time on every one of these passages <laughs> like that one. What does it mean that they all go together and they're all extinguished at that moment? What is we don't have time for that, but um, but it's there's something timeless that they that they this love making that is sickening the our minds. He's reminding us of something we've lost. Um, oh, by the way, here I mean, remember those of you who've done the Iliad, the Odyssey. Remember what happens after the battle when um, Odysseus and Penelope go to bed. Yeah, time stops. That is, they, they come out of that epic action, the birth, the fighting, the quarreling, the, I mean, all the ugliness of it, you know, time stops. The love-making doesn't stop. Time stops while they make love. I mean, it, there's something like that going on here that is disgusting it may be to us. It's, it's a reminder of something lost, that we are out of touch with nature, we are out of touch with time. Um, we, we can't read well. The answer to Benji was to castrate him. The answer to this is to kill that cow. This masculine sense of structures and this hard, implacable will. The, the constancy of the women, you know, the, what's feminine. Um, they're all pointing to something, I think, real in our culture. I think that's part of who we are. OK, you guys have a good week. Stay with this. Stay with this. Good luck with those kids. What? Good luck with those kids. Thanks. Don't be surprised if you get a call. <laughs>